0: Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet, risk-takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind-bogglers. To find all episodes of this show, simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, JudgmentCallPodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business-class life tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com MTP or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number 4, and the letter u.com to sign up for your 30 day free trial. I hope this is going to be good. I can see you clearly now. And what about my video? Can you see me? I had trouble yesterday. I don't know what's going on with Comcast here. Maybe you have the same issue. The upload yeah. speeds are really tanked.
1: I think that um, I've been having issues with Comcast, and I've been having, um, I've heard like from at least 10 people this week that Google Meet is having some issues. Um, that might be it yeah Yeah.
0: that might be it I I I have like it works and then the next meeting it's terrible and then it's crystal clear again and then it's terrible again so it depends on the server um I haven't figured this out yet but I had two podcasts yesterday one was perfect and the next one was horrible I I don't even know if I can use it so I can just use the audio the audio at least worked
1: yeah but the Um, audio
0: is good now too um yeah, so, sorry about the, uh, to hear about uh, your family. Uh, did your grandma die or your grandpa? No, my my
1: um, my mom's sister, my aunt died. Um, oh, okay. Sorry yeah, to hear
0: that. Yeah, and
1: yeah, no. Thank you, thank you. Um, she was kind of the the remaining matriarch of the family after my, my grandmother passed. So she's kind of the oldest uh, relative yeah. we have. Um, and uh, it just within within a week. Uh, had come up and and she like no she just she told us you know I'm this is it um, I'm I'm ready to go to the other side and and so that was that was the film process but um, yeah I think she's in a better place
0: now. Were you able to see her before she died?
1: Uh, I don't live uh, near her. She lives in New York. Um okay. Though it was. Family Zoom calls as best as we could with the the medical staff. Um, yeah. Oh, they then, didn't let
0: you in the hospital at all.
1: No, no. They, she was oh. in she was in ICU, and then um, uh, we we really only had like one one call. It was like forty five minutes. Um, yeah. And then about uh, what ten hours later, uh, she passed. So.
0: Yeah. Well, that's really sad. I find that, that I find that really devastating. That relatives are not able to to visit their their family members i don't know where this comes from and um, there's obviously a risk involved but you know it's it's one of those things that i felt they're so core to human behavior and to the human experience and they're so important um just cordoning people off and not allowing any visitors. You know, obviously it's a risk, right? And the, the visitors need to be ready to accept that risk. But if they want to accept that risk, they should definitely be able to visit. I, I've seen cases in the UK where they were not allowing any visitors. I didn't know that's a policy in the US.
1: I think it varies from um, potentially even like state to state or region to region. Um, I think certainly in this case, the it was mostly the hospital um Kind of, and the risks associated with like bringing non like COVID negative people into these spaces. And they were just like, we, we can't afford that. Like, we already have patients that um, have other concerns and, and we're trying to protect them from it and just having family in those spaces. So, like, um, even from the point of my family who is in New York, um, they're like, we, we couldn't even step through. Uh, into yeah. the hospital so it was yeah. all it's just such a strange it's a very strange experience to, yeah.
0: it's
1: just, it's well strange.
0: there's there's something going on and i know you're a local in in san francisco in the area you too what i feel there is this this sense of of detachment i mean the sense of we we want to stay away from other people as much as possible we want to um, we kind of treat children like like a biohazard. We we um, there's all kinds of I don't know. People's eyes look to me that they're when I look into them, they're scared and they're 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 trying to detach themselves from from society and other people as much as possible. And you can you can make that argument. This is about COVID, but I mean, COVID is a thing that affects mostly elderly people right so my my grandmother died really early in the pandemic uh, last year and it was sad but you know that's you're 105 years old at some point you you got to accept that 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 fate right and she was definitely not healthy so um she was kind of she wasn't really conscious for for quite some time anymore anyways but it's really i don't know how you how you see your environment changing, but I see the social environment that was already a little shaky out here in San Francisco, I felt, because the way it morphed the last five, 10 years. But I, I see, when I look into people's eyes here, and those are, you know, well-off people, none of them is poor, they're all, um, you know, seemingly making $100,000 at least a year or more. They seem struck by fear. Um, I, I I I don't know if they want to shake that feeling or if they kind of, they, they really want to, embrace it so much. I feel like we've entered like a Russian society where everyone like embraces their depression and uh, kind of just just wants to cry out how terrible they feel. And that's kind of, if the most the person who feels the most terrible is a famous author, right, is a famous intellectual, um, that's a sign of your life is great if you feel depressed. I feel like something, else, something similar is happening here now, but it's more fearful than it is depressed, although that also plays a big role. And yes, these factors... We all are part of this um, this bigger society, and what's going on. And these they affect clearly. They affect all of us. But sometimes I feel people in San Francisco they 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 embrace it so much they kind of swim in these feelings, and they they really want to they want to tell everyone around um, how terrible life is, and that that they are the most terrible, the most oppressed, so to speak. Oppressed is is, is now gotten a political sense. I don't mean that in a political sense. They just they feel really terrible, and everyone should know that. I don't know what your observations are in the Bay Area, but I feel that's 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 quite stunning to see. And I don't see this when I go to Miami, right? Or I don't see this when I go to Texas, for instance.
1: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I think there's a, I don't remember when it was, but it was a few years ago and they were talking about um, stoicism and, and sort of a, the celebration of that sort of, um, cult, I don't know if you want to call it culture per se, but it's that sort of mentality, that mindset, um, that suffering and suffering in silence in a lot of ways is um, kind of um, a trophy prize, or it's a badge of honor, or it's something that, oh, look at you, you've done such a great thing and bearing such a burden. But when you think about a lot of that is kind of exactly what you said, it's sometimes it's quite self-inflicted. Yeah, um, exactly. It's, it's something that um, in some ways we're manufacturing this as well and you know and i think especially to your point with with covid that fear you know when we yes it's a terrible pandemic yes it's a it's a difficult time for everyone and then some significantly more than others because of lack of resource or support systems um but i i think that the if you look at sort of the gradient of who's really sort of impacted by this in a negative way and and the folks that are like oh, you know, woe is me, look at how difficult it is. When in, in reality, it's like we're working from home. You know, you, you still have a job, you still can take care of your essentials. You've got all these apps to help make your life like magical. Um, and yet there seems to be this very pervasive, um, again, self-inflicted um, thinking around life is so difficult. Life is so burdened. Um i am I am oppressed. I am this. and it's the reality is you know, in relative comparison to the rest of the world, many of us are living quite well. Um, and taking the opportunity and the time to recognize that as as privilege um, or even being grateful, having a practice of gratitude, it's just not baked into the culture here. Um,
0: yeah, there's something bigger um, at play that I always feel and and um, I really wanted to have you on the podcast because we had we had so many um, topics that we in our last conversation that we kind of just uh, we skimmed through them, um, and some of them I think have a lot of meat to it, not just about the future, but also in terms of how how humans behave with each other and, and what's going on in society. And uh, so one thing that's kind of a theme of me, and I sometimes I'm still figuring out how this actually works, but I feel there is an adverse relationship between the amount of income um, you 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 have and the happiness and it's not there's a lot of studies that being poor um, in this society it doesn't matter what society but just being poor and living in that society is bad for your health it's it's bad for, you for there's a lot of factors you can count them people make make hasty decisions people make bad decisions so you can say oh being poor is 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 really bad and I think that's true if you say that if our our yardstick is the United States, for instance. But then you go to really poor countries um, and where we're, we're, we're individuals that we would classify in the U.S. as poor just by sheer, like the same amount of income um, that what the U.N. counts um, as, as GDP per person, uh, we would consider them poor. But since they live in a different environment, they are actually well-off rich, middle class, whatever, whatever class or whatever bracket you want to subsume them under. But what's stunning is when you go to 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 poorer countries is that the the amount of happiness and that's a pre-COVID observation. I think it still holds true to an extent, but they obviously also shaken. But the amount of happiness as poorer you get as more the stronger the sense of community, stronger the sense of we have we are all in this together. And I feel there's a lot of happiness in individuals, and I see this. Obviously, it depends on the country, it depends on where you go and, and their culture. But in general, I feel there's a relationship for me holds true as poor the country as better the sense of community and as better the individual happiness. And I can't really put my finger to as why this could be the case, because obviously there is, there is a sense of we live in a better society. We have higher living standards, better medicine. <clears throat> but strangely, it seems to have also skyrocketed our anxiety or our negative feelings and this seems to have taken away the enjoyment, right? So it's 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 almost like it was all for naught. Like we have all these achievements and they are absolutely there. I, mean, I don't want to diminish them, but they seem to have reduced the amount of happiness we can actually experience, kind of taking away the, the greatness of this technology and, and the you say privilege, I think this is also a political word, but the, the amount of good things that, that we have at our disposal, we have we are not able to enjoy them anymore.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think it, it kind of comes to some sense of consciousness and connecting to one's own station in life and, and what you know what does one have like access to whether it's support system, it's resources it's knowledge um I don't th- I, I think we live in a society where we we're, we're just going through the action we don't have time to recenter. We don't have time to check in with ourselves, take stock of what we do have in our life. And exactly to your point, I, I think even the the sort of like diminishing pool of support that we have or, or community or connection that we have has, a, I mean, some of it may be caused by technology. You know, we, we think that technology is our placement for, um, you know, viable, supportive, healthy relationships and community. Um, But I think a lot of it is just people not realizing or taking the time or having uh, a practice of reconnecting to what they do have. Um, We're we're just in this perpetual rat race where we're just going through the motions, going through the day. What's the next big thing? There's rarely um, a process of celebration. There's rarely a process of um, connectedness and sort of completion of phases that we go through. Um, And without those sort of grounding practices, I think we perpetually live uh, not in the present, not in what we are and the reality of it. We're always living in some future state, uh, which is in a lot of ways is, is very helpful because we are able to connect to something that's not yet existent or not yet tangible. But there's also a really important thing in recognizing the now. And celebrating the now. And without that, um, we, we become quite disconnected from ourselves and from each other. And and frankly, just the state of mind that is necessary for us to exist and be content. Um, and I had I'd heard a stat, I, I can't, don't quote me on this, but it was, the thinking was, you know, the amount of happiness you can have, um, you can't increase it. There's no, there's no sort of cap on this, but you can have more frequent happiness and people who are happy, they have more instances of being happy, even if it's small bursts. And I think that when you are able to um, get grounded, reflect on things, have a meditative practice, you're able to engage that process of more frequency. And I think that's uh, an important thing. People who who may not have that practice for themselves, um, or don't, you know, are kind of striving to get like this happiness, which is virtually impossible. But you know, instead of looking for something a little bit more sustainable, that helps, I think, connect to well being. It helps connect to a more grounded sense of reality, um, and and in a more appreciation of, of the current state.
0: Yeah, as part of your work. Um, well, you, you, as far as I know, you, you think about a lot about the future and how it connects to individuals or a community. And one thing you just mentioned, I think that's, that's, that's absolutely true. We, 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 we think of technology as this, this, this super new religion, right? This super new community. So it fulfills all these things that were a little clunky in the past, but we, but they were better, there was no alternative. So we would just stuck to it. And then technology is maybe our savior, so to speak. But if, if, if that's a guide, you know, and I'm curious if you think that's temporary, because there's going to be a huge wave of technology that seems to be even that seems to really strong in terms of how our brain is going to be reshaped. So AI is already doing this, but AI is going to be really powerful, really cheap. It already is that, but it's not applied that that far. But it's going to change in the next five years. There's going to be tons of robots and things that look like humans or behave like humans, but they are not humans. So there's a lot going on. Do you think we will, we, will, we will go back to a happy phase, like we, we go back between these manic depressive phases and uh, everyone's going to be joyful for whatever reason, right? All the happy people, there were happy people here in San Francisco, but they might have left, they have left a couple of years ago and definitely nobody, nobody is left who's happy now. Do you think we go through these phases or have we entered like a, like a secular shift where, where all these advances in technology and they will only speed up, um, they actually make us more depressed?
1: That's an interesting question. I think that I think we're going to have more perhaps fracturing um, of things. Like, and what I mean by that is, I think that current belief systems, or um, you know, secularism versus you know some of the world's religions, or even just uh, sort of ideology, um, we're seeing the emergence of new thinking um, and and secularism and, um, you know, thoughts around even what does it mean to be human beyond, so transhumanism, uh, transhumanism, um, which produces a completely new field of thinking about, like, who we are, you know, agency, um, control, creativity, all these, like, very meaningful things that I think are a really big part of um, human spirituality. But I also think that, um, for other parts of the world where there's more of a, a cultural root for certain spiritual practices or religious practices, um, those will either strengthen or splinter or, or become completely different um, things. And so I think it's it's kind of hard to say from, you know, uh, will there be a natural convergence of all these things? Um, yes, to some extent. But I also think that things will also... Um, take on their own life. And and what I mean by that is technology is, um, technology is interesting because it is a tool from a, you know, anthropological perspective. Um, It advances culture. Uh, It is a vehicle for for cultural practices, for rituals. Um, And yet it can also be culture itself in a lot of ways. If we look at things like social media and and influencers and um, uh, even Uh, very iconic things in the AI world, Um, it does become its own thing. Um, But how it gets integrated into, uh, if you will, like the greater human culture, uh, sort of the the big cloud that oversees all human culture, um, I think we're not necessarily as a society moving towards greater convergence um, or sort of resonance between things. I think we're we're actually creating smaller... um, for lack of a better word, like privatized cultures um, that are kind of splintering off. And, and you don't really, some of, most of them, you probably don't see them, see the light of day. They exist incognito. They exist kind of in the shadows. Um, and it's maybe enjoyed by only a select few people. Um, I don't think we're, we're coming to a, a time in society where um, mass experiences are necessarily what we've experienced in mass in the past. I think it's um, a number of people experiencing smaller things, but together. Uh, if that makes any sense, so it's kind of like these things are happening it
0: does. in parallel. I, I I think that's absolutely that's absolutely how the future will look like. They'll be splinter off because it's more customized, right? So it it looks more to it's more customized to what our DNA or our psychology suggests we would enjoy. So I think this is is actually good development. Technology makes this very cheap, so we don't have to go with like the big. Overarching theme, and then uh, labor under it for forty years. That's how we see our ancestors. I'm actually not sure that's true, but that's how I think the modern mind looks back to the ancestors. And then you have a violent death at the age of forty-five. Right? That's kind of what we think. I think that things have, must be different because when you when you read the old Greeks, at least some people in old Greece had a good life. Um, I don't know if this applies to ninety-nine percent of the population. Probably it doesn't. Um, but what I think what 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 the risk is obviously is that we we lose this connection to humanity, right? So we we, we come up, we forget all the old rituals, but we still don't really understand why we behave the way we behave, right? So w- why do we do things when we are one years old? We have no clue. Our DNA is pre, does pre-program it. How, do how does a character actually develop? We don't know, even psychologists, they, they can barely describe um, a character, right? There's a big five and there's a, there's every five years, there's a new model, how to describe a character or character traits but they keep changing and we don't really have a good language for it. That's the first problem. We have no idea where it comes from, right? Does it is it pre-programmed? Does it is it shaped by the environment? And there's a lot of good um, theories on it. But in the end, we, we haven't really figured this out and we don't know how the brain works. So I feel like we have these stone age tools in terms of, uh, we don't really know why we are who we are, We yet we are building like the next generation of, of AI, right? They could be kind of conscious beings. They're not yet there, but the day will come. And before we even understood ourselves, we are already going to the next generation and creating them, and they will have the same problem. Maybe they also don't know why they act like they act. And I often ask myself the question: when you think of criminals, right? So why we we've been shaped by so many generations of, of of domestication, so to speak. So only the successful DNA has survived. That's I don't know, hundreds, thousands of generations back. But we still have people who are intrinsically know they're they're 10 years old and they want to be criminals that's their career not necessarily violent right but they're they're psychopath they're sociopath they they manipulate other people for their own personal gain shouldn't we have left those people behind going through all this genetic selection over hundreds of years thousands of years um hundreds of thousands of years and my theory is well we should but actually those influences that we think are are troublesome they actually make part of the society. So they, they keep everyone honest. If we wouldn't have crime, if we wouldn't have even violent crime, if we wouldn't have that, then people wouldn't be scared. They wouldn't, they wouldn't follow in order that makes everyone better off. So I feel like strangely enough, civilization follows rules that on first glance seem counterintuitive, but they actually seem to be encoded in something. I don't know whoever designed this whole game, the simulation, right? seem to have known about these rules and, and put it in place so that it works sustainably. And this leads me, this is already a, a lot of ranting, but it leads me to this, the obvious question that I always ask. Do you think, where do all these things come from? Do you think we are in a simulation? Do you think it is something that kind of happened completely by accident or it's completely random, but it seems there is some cloud storage of knowledge that we sometimes access, but it's definitely not a conscious access. So we download stuff, but it's not conscious.
1: Yeah, I I think that, um, you know, and I kind of go back and forth on this a little bit because um, I was raised with a particular ideology um, and some of it, which I, you know, carry on into adult life and some of it I assess in a different way. Um, and so I think a lot of... Uh, a lot of human, well, if we look at even just humans as a species, um, and we look at the architecture of the world we live in, you know, bio, the biology of it, the physics of it, the chemistry of it, um, each, each sort of way of breaking down how we study human, the human species, human culture, human civilization, I think is a natural progression of systems. Um, so my, my father was a, a physicist and, and the way that he had always thought about things was that the, the language of all things, you know, whether it's humanity by other organisms is math, uh, and math, if you boil it down is physics and physics, if you boil it down is chemistry and chemistry, if you boil it down is biology. And so there's a natural sort of order to these things more or less, give or take. Okay. Um, yeah. And, I, and so I, I would have
0: I would have thought if he's a physicist that the physics would be at the top of this this hierarchy. You would think
1: that you would think yeah. that, but the but the mathematics he kind was of, more uh, altruistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so essentially, everything um, in in the world is math, uh, and everything at you know the the building blocks of it is biology. Um,
0: yeah. So, but so we are a quantum computer right so the universe is a quantum computer right so it, does, it goes back to basic rules and they seem to be extremely basic it takes us a while to discover but then you know the, even you know einstein's equations are easy i mean so many equations up until 50 years ago everyone can learn this so easy math but that 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 kind of would lead us i mean that would lead me to the that's a simulation right the rules are too simple if it's so simple then someone basically designed that in his little playstation that's kind of the fear I have when other people think of it the other way, they say, no, no, no this is really simple because the simple solution always wins, and this is what what had has won out over you know so many uh, millions and uh, hundreds of millions of years. Um, but but to me, I mean myself, and this is obviously a hypothetical argument, um, uh, I'm really drawn to the simulation theory. Um, as for as more as I think about it, and it's been popular popularized now for a couple of years. Uh, it won't make sense to me but there's probably no way to prove this ever
1: I think yeah it's probably not something we can prove because probably the the parameters of it are probably imperceptible to us um, you know we we only have so much sensing capability um, anything that moves beyond the sensory is is either it must be intuitive, or we have to infer, or we have to use some sense of, um, I don't know, imagination. Um, but there is a limit to what we as humans can perceive. Um, uh, and I, I do think that a lot of, it's interesting because I wonder how much of this is pre-programmed and we're just sort of running the natural path of programming. And how much of this is more generative? Uh, how much of this is more, um, uh, emergent behavior. So it's the, you know, the alchemy or the synthesis of tossing together a bunch of different um, things and then seeing new behavior come through. Um, and and like yeah. in this case, is it a fully autonomous program or is there someone or some entity or some in the universe that holds these sort of puppet strings or tweaks things or, you know, kind of plays with this dynamic? Um, I think that's left to be, uh, that's left to be kind of pontificated on by, by society and everyone will have their own interpretation based on the fact that we as humans are, like from perception perspective and sensory perspective, not able to sense or discern, um, unless we leverage technology in a meaningful way, maybe then. Um, but I, I think it's quite difficult and and it's fascinating to think about, but at the same time, I think, maybe it's not always the most fruitful fruitful thing to think about because it is difficult to
0: right when when i think about it you know it, and when you think about neuropsychology the the idea of free will goes out the window relatively quickly when you run these experiments i mean for us free will exists right of course but when you run experiments when you when you do the literature it's basically it's gone i mean there isn't much how you you can manipulate people relatively easily and it's 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 not it has been done for forever i guess but what's interesting for me is that it seems the people when we are ancestors of theirs who who held up that idea of free will so against all the facts right so it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy against of all the facts that they knew they held up this 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 prophecy of free will and it can it it, it can happen right it's not impossible but it all, almost never happens. so it's, it's almost like this was the, the, the selected program that helped people survive better. Just believing in something that seems idiotic, if you actually go down to the science, there is basically no free will. I mean, there's not a lot of psychologists who will, if if you press them, say there is really free will, depending on definition. But in, in most cases, you can actually uh, talk it away. And... So, so what? W- what this leads me to is we are actually a self-delusional species. So we ancestors of even more self-delusional people, or maybe slightly less. But we we we, we drown in these self delusions, just like the COVID epidemic. I'm not saying it, it's 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 virus isn't real. It is real, but the extent of what we made out of it and how we drown in this this negative feelings, they have other origins, and we 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 make this happen. So that's I think maybe it is well understood, but I feel like. The, the, the impact of these huge civilizations and the amount of people and how they are connected and how they influence each other it's it's not very well understood like the old Greeks didn't have much of this because the communication channels were just not there you know Socrates have to talk to every single person to influence them which took eventually happened but took them 30 40 years but now with one tweet you you can influence humanity um I don't know if you what what, what do you feel is the future of this 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 mass communication do you think We'll, we'll get this under control and we get tired of all the tweets, um, th- things that that, that kind of, and it seems to be, Twitter seems to be cooling off um, as, as a star. Uh, and um, do you feel we learn how to deal with this or it's just going to bring us into really negative rabbit holes and things we we have trouble getting out of?
1: I go back and forth on this. I, I do agree. I think Twitter uh, Twitter is definitely... Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily going away, but I do think that the way it's used and, and the frequency at which just used is changing. Um, my personal observation, just to kind of pick a quick side, side tangent with Twitter, is that um, it's becoming more, again, kind of these like closed off communities or these fragmentations. And it's yeah. not even like, oh, this is marketing Twitter or oh, this is design Twitter. It's like, this is a very specific sliver cross-section of this and it's just... I don't want to use the word echo chamber, but I'm going to use it because it's the only thing I can think of. It's just resonance within that chamber. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's rarely sort of uh, connectors, bridges. There's no seeking behavior. Um, yeah. It's like, I am here. I am going to engage in this cross-section. That is it. And I think that um, there's some fatigue associated with that, which is why I think the the move has been, and largely it seems like Clubhouse and similar platforms have been kind of the, um, the exodus for some of the Twitter conversations and communities. Um, but I do think that even some of the common sentiments uh, within uh, Clubhouse and other platforms like that is that it takes even a smaller subsection of things and it like magnifies into this big topic and like, oh, yeah. isn't this interesting? Oh, wh- how about we talk about this thing? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Um, and I'm I'm certainly not saying that it is necessarily the future of mass communication, but I think we are in a, in an age where people are, you know, they're taking the tweezers and they are cherry picking, you know, it's not, and we think about mass media in the past. It's a, it's a one way broadcast. You get what you're given. We look up, we look at mass communication now we're not talking about it in, in terms of directionality. We're talking about it in terms of like audience slides. And so I that call audience-
0: it, I, Yeah, I call it self-propaganda. You know, when you when you think about it, I grew up with propaganda. So people had a political idea and they pushed it down on you. And if you didn't conform, you were in prison. But now we seek out these these, these things that, that we know might not be 100% true, but they make us feel comfortable. And they, 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 they're even in what I already believe. I seek that out and I feel really good. When I when I see this on Twitter, not me personally, but I think this is the this is the effect, the self-propagandization of your immediate thinking model, so to speak, your mental model. And uh, well, one thing, and I didn't want to interrupt you, but that what, what was really interesting, you said that last time. You know, there is, and that's become a rarity. There is a way to make a good living just being curious. And I wonder how you how you feel that fits into because it, I feel that society has become the opposite. Being curious is like the last thing people want.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's something that I, I believe very much in is knowing where your influence comes from. I think a lot of people like to think that they're quite original and that anything that they've created, constructed, conversed on is, you know, theirs and theirs alone uh, because they've added some unique spin to to something that they had heard or they've integrated something from a bunch of different places. Um, But this again kind of goes back to what we talked about at the start of this conversation is how often does, do you reflect on a thing? How often do you recognize um, some of the internal, you know, self-talk that you're having, some of the thoughts you're having. And I think it's the same thing when we talk about um, curiosity and we talk about um, some of these echo chambers of communication and and quote unquote community. Um, If we don't know where influence is coming from, and we don't take inventory of it in a meaningful way, and we don't question it with a critical lens, um, and really sort of bifurcate what is ours, or at least what do we what do we believe is ours versus what are we taking from other places, and we don't have an awareness of that. I think it becomes, um, it's like any any food diet you have. If you're eating the same thing over and over again, eventually, you know you either don't notice it, you get bored of it or, or something else. I think you need to have a diversification. And so having an awareness of where your influence comes from, who are the communities or the people that feed that, that influence? Um, and what are you doing to diversify? Um, you know, how, uh, the common thing I think in nutrition is like, oh, go eat the rainbow, you know, red, purple, green, orange, whatever. Um, if we're looking at where our influence comes from, and we're only consuming um, portions of things, and we're only creating um, within certain realms. Um, then we have a serious question to ask ourselves, which is, you know how how much of who I am is created by me um, versus others, and how much of that is expanding versus contracting or isolating. Um, so I think curiosity really comes down to that awareness of of where you're pulling from and what you're actually uh self-authoring.
0: I, I like this view. Um I'm not sure I'm not sure that's that's something we can expect from humanity though. Because I feel this we we do this huge download of culture, right, when we are kids. And I think we keep doing this because society now we realize that we can take whatever's out there for given as given and we can uh, we can just add like the little tiniest bit of sliver on top of it and create this either as our own, right? So this is um, this is how, how, for instance, coding works, right? You download tons and tons of stuff from GitHub, but then you have this tiny sliver, maybe just a hundred lines of code and makes it 10 times faster. And, and that's that's what people reward you for, right? So your company will reward you for this. If you publish this somewhere else, other developers will reward you for this. But if you're not knowing all the other packages out there, you know, encoding, it's hundreds of different libraries that you, you have to know. If you don't include them, then you're slow because someone else already did this task and you don't have to redo it. So we, we always fear as, as, as humans that we reinvent the wheel, so to speak, and we want to, we want to add this tiny sliver. That's at least what innovation has become, adding tiny slivers on tiny slivers, but it's still pretty quick because everyone interacts with everyone in real time. And this... What I'm what I'm trying to say is we we don't know these other libraries that that we incorporate into our mental model. We don't necessarily know who they came where they came from. I mean, think about math. I don't know who invented the particular piece of algebra that I learned when I was in seventh grade or sixth grade. Someone did it, right? So it, I made it my own, and then six years later, I thought, okay, this is my knowledge, but it's actually someone else's. And I think this process keeps on going. So we learn stuff out there, and it within a little bit. Maybe just a few days later, I think most people on Twitter, if they even remember what's what they read, it will be hard. If they do remember, then they certainly don't know where it came from. And I think six months later, they have no idea if this is an idea that was planted by someone, maybe without intent, but just it came into someone's came from someone else. Or this is an idea they they themselves generated. I think it's really hard. I, I can I have to say I fail at this task completely. Um, but I feel there is there is always and Alexander Bart gave me that idea. How he thinks about the shamans, but part of the society who, who is always very curious, who kind of have this as a genetic flaw or as a genetic advantage, whatever that is in that situation, that they are always curious and you're looking for the next thing, the next big thing. And I'm I'm, I'm one of those. Right, there's hundreds hundreds of thousands of others out just here in the Bay Area, and uh, I wonder if this curiosity is something we can as you say we can train people and can tell them you know you have to look outside of your rabbit hole and there's more for you there and it, it's it's good or if this is something that only a small percentage of the population will actually ever do and, and you know socrates was already complaining about most people they, they couldn't care less right the most people in old athens they couldn't care less about what he said but some people actually got it and they they got they got some satisfaction just talking about these things with him.
1: Um, we're, we're born creative, we lose the creativity because it's either ironed out of us um, or we don't have positive reinforcement systems to encourage. And I think particularly having been born and raised as an American, um, I don't think that the American education system and, and a lot of the social systems here value creativity. It's not something that's exercised. It's not something that's encouraged. Um, if you look at the, the everyday work, Place for most um, Americans and and likely even globally. Where is creativity as a requirement, or where is you know is it protected as a value uh, within the workplace? No, the industrial revolution has made it so that we segment our work in a very specific way, um, and that that segmentation of work and that focus on the operational efficiency is such a far departure from. the, you know, what creativity brings. And so I think that um, when we think about, you know, can, can we as a society um, encourage more creativity at scale? Um, is it something that everyone gets to do um, or is it just for a, a select few? Um, I think right now, the way that our, our global society is architected, um, creativity in a lot of ways is either, it, you have to take a sacrifice somewhere. You know, either you you pick a very particular lifestyle, um, you might, you might not get paid quite a bit for it, um, and and that's sort of the you make a choice or a trade off. Um, it's not something that is readily accessible to everyone, um, and and certainly I think, unfortunately, that's why many people don't get to participate in that process in a meaningful way.
0: so how much of creativity should we allow right so that's that's in the end the question i don't know if you have any golden rule there
1: i i mean I'm, I'm very curious to see what gen z is going to do um because they in a lot of ways they are creator native in a way that like millennials were kind of considered digital black brown not think millennials are truly digital native um but they're the first generation that can think about creativity and and even the monetization of creativity, which is a kind of an interesting dynamic um, in a, quite a different way from other generations. In terms of like how much um, um, people should have, uh, you know, daydream self, you know, imagination, um, and that should just be a natural part of like healthy um, mental health. Um, and I think it's a very meditative process as well because you you understand and you're able to visualize in your own mind um, certain things that you you are you know quite keen on um, if we were talking about society I think society stands to benefit so much from increased or enhanced creativity um, however that needs to exist whether it's community whether it's um, you know the way that we talk about it uh, And then I think certainly in the workplace, um, it is something to be encouraged. How do you actually plug that into something like innovation or how do you plug that into something like employee engagement or experience? That's a completely different conversation. Um, But all of this is to say that I think that there should be enhanced practices of creativity um, and however you need to divide that up in your own life Um, it is kind of a reflection of, you know, what do you hope to get out of it? Um, If it's like a, you know, sort of education institute of creativity, um, I I think there's certainly learning opportunities. I think there's positive reinforcement um, and psychologically safe ways of encouraging creativity. Um, But again, I think some of it's for internal practice, some of it's for society, you know, culture, the workplace. So you, you kind of have to divide out how much of it you need to keep for yourself, how much of it you need to uh, propel into the world.
0: Yeah, I think it really comes down to what is the future of the workplace and the future of a K, to, K to 12 and also um, university education. And... Um, I had uh, Marcy Powell on yesterday. She's She's been running the United States Distance Learning Association. So she's been preaching distance learning for 20 years and nobody ever listened to her, so to speak. Obviously people have listened to her, but it, it's only been a real big um, recognition in the last two years. Um, how do you see online learning, distance learning, however you wanna call it, how do you see it shape um, the next 20 years and the next generation. Uh, my, my personal model is, well, my personal view um, is that there's so much content out there and, and education will change completely. Um, and these institutions that we built that were necessary a hundred years ago, they now, they look like the Soviet Union to me. Like they're, they're far behind. Um, yes, they are not terrible. And they, 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 they kind of deliver a bottom line, um, but they're way too expensive and they don't, they don't really prepare people for what's out there anymore. And that that also goes all the way to adult education, right? Education is probably, you should never stop. We kind of get a little lazy if you find a profitable niche, but in the end, if you don't have that, then we we, we, we restart our educational process. How do you see these things work? And uh, I know you've been a mentor for Udacity, um, one of those uh, trailblazers in the industry.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely, I completely agree with you. I, I think that we're looking at very... Our archaic, outdated systems for how we acquire knowledge and acquire skills to enter the workforce. I think everything essentially comes down to, to kind of preparedness for your job and your profession. Um, I, I don't think, I, I think the evolution that's going to happen is that there's going to be um, less there's going to be more self-directed learning for for those who are going to be able to do that um, and are able to manage themselves in that way. Um, I think a lot. There's a number of sort of online high schools where the curriculum is solely self-directed. You have you know maybe a mentor, guidance counselor, um, teachers, but it's very project-based. It's very inquiry-based, uh, which I think is a wonderful thing for curiosity uh, and for creativity. Um, education up to now is very. Um, Teacher directed. It's very kind of state level um, focused, um, and, and most people haven't learned how to learn through that. It's right now it's resuscitation. It's just yeah. spitting back out what you've already heard. Um, but instead, I think what's really valuable is you know critical thinking, um, learning to author your own thoughts um, and your own curiosity around this, and and have it translate into something meaningful as a contribution to society not a piece of paper that says I did X, Y, and Z that all the other students did. And I just happened to remember it better or I just happened to test better on it. Um, Instead, it's like, what is your positive contribution to society? What's the discussion you're trying to have? Um, And ultimately what outcomes or impact are you trying to drive? Um, Yeah. I think that one of the- I think this is how, yeah, I
0: think this is so important what you say. I think school, and I think they do this, but they eventually give up after some time. Every school year, and maybe every day, should start. What is your contribution to society going to be? I know you're only eight years old, but give me five things that you think. This should be the, the task, it should be repeated every day. I feel in our school system it doesn't exist. Even later in universities, it doesn't really exist. Maybe a little bit when you, when you, when you, some very ambitious people bring out these ideas. But everybody should have that, It should be something. That is unique, right? Only one person does it once, and then it's available for charge or for free for the to the rest of society. I think this is a, the societal advancement model, right? But it's it's it, this question doesn't even appear for 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 most of schooling and for any kind of education. It's oh, I do something to improve my job chances, which isn't bad, right? All the job sets of requirement, and you you probably do something useful. Otherwise, this job wouldn't exist. But I think people should should have this, this intrinsic motivation and they should, I don't think any day we spend not thinking about this is a day lost in our lives.
1: Yeah, no, I don't think so. I, I think something that is really critical to this, I, I think, again, is self-reflection. Um, because you go through the day doing the things you do, but then how do you integrate it back in? How do you push it back into some greater... Vision or, or strategy that you have. Um, and there is rarely a, we're rarely, if ever, held accountable to that practice. Um, you know, I, I think that's why it's fascinating to watch people set goals for themselves um, and then to watch them think about uh, the execution of it. Um, and I think even the way that they structure their, like the relationship they have to their future self the relationship they have to society. Um, there's, there. I wouldn't say this as, you know, I'm not saying this like in a very generalized way, but I would gather that the vast majority of people don't have a practice for that. And I talk about practices a lot because I think it's, it's um, yeah. the manifestation of behavior uh, in a intentional, deliberative, structured way. Um, and without that continuous integration, without that sort of, um, taking out the trash of old beliefs or old ways of doing things and installing new ones and running them through their paces. Um, we're just reactive. We're just going to be reactive organisms. Whatever pops up on the horizon, whatever strikes our fancy. But the moment that we're able to have a dialogue with ourselves through this reflective process, um, the sooner we're able to recognize patterns of ourselves, patterns in others, patterns in society. Um, and actually have a meaningful path forward in learning to get to there. Um, and there's, there's a fascinating uh, aspect to, to psychology, which is um, kind of like audio, uh, autobiographical planning. So the ability to think about yourself outside of yourself and how do you kind of connect the dots on your story. Um, and I think most people sort of live in the present or they live in the past. Sure. Um, in extremes, both for themselves and for society. Um, and the only difference that I've found um, within people who are very effective at thinking about the future and creating the future and learning in order to get to the future is that they, they're they able to run that process internally. Um, they're able to to analyze themselves and have very critical conversations with themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they go out and they have these these habits of, you know, looking for patterns, uh, connecting with a wide range of people, being very curious, um, uh, having a generative process for how do I apply this impact uh, for myself, but also for others. Um, But it all starts with that reflection. Um, And that's the engine that drives whether or not we can think about the future, whether or not we can be creative um, and ultimately the future of learning. Um, you have to have some engine that runs internally.
0: Yeah. I think the biggest problem with this is it's human laziness, right? So we are born very lazy. We, we just want to do the, min, the most minimal thing that, 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 guarantees our survival and maybe the survival of our offspring but that's about it right this is what we are programmed to do because probably for good reason otherwise we would would waste all these calories and we would probably not make it through the winter so this was this is our ancestral heritage um how do you get people to motivate themselves because i think if you don't don't pre-instill and you know the wider picture uh, i don't know your age but but a lot of wisdom i feel i it just wouldn't have gotten to me twenty years ago. Um, some people are ahead of their time. I definitely wasn't. It it took a certain amount of years to get to a certain amount of wisdom. There is no way I could have recognized this when I was nineteen. No way. You you could I could have had the same conversation or could have listened to to to, to that conversation right here, and I would have disassociated myself from it and said, "Well, this is not important. How are we going to change the world? I'm I'm interested in, I don't know what's the next streaming service I can sign up for, um, or." Um, how uh, how can i play the better at a certain video game right so these things i wanted to learn because they were right inside my 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 comfort zone and 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 the knowledge that i was already very proficient in and i was looking slightly above that right but i wouldn't wouldn't want to be too far out so this is such a moving target and and but but even motivating people to just go slightly outside of this comfort zone where they are um, I find it's incredibly hard. Overcoming this laziness is extremely difficult.
1: Yeah, no, I, I can completely relate to that. There are many things that I'm um, quite intellectually lazy about. And, and even just in the everyday life, I, I recognize that there are things. And some of that actually is, I mean, actually some of that is quite good because it's, a, it's an efficiency practice. It's, you know, how can I um, focus on the things that matter, that, you know, have... Good value or immediate gain, um, and then reserving sort of a buffer capacity for like bursts um, whenever we need that. And I think that's essential, you know, as a biological organism because we deal with so much uncertainty. But that said, I think motivation is, um, you know, you have intrinsic, you have extrinsic. Um, Everyone has a different motivation based on the experiences they've had so far in life. Um, so some people can be quite career-driven, other people are quite, you know, I just want to live a good life, um, you know, slow paced, enjoyable. Um, and so knowing oneself and and knowing how, you know, what are you reacting to? What are you responding to? Um, and really like what drives you at the end of the day? Um, I, I think that's a journey in and of itself. Uh, some of us don't, unfortunately or fortunately, um, don't ever get to embark on that journey. Um, because you know, for whatever reason, we never discover it, or we just we're so busy fighting fires in our life that we we just don't have the capacity to do that. Um, but I think again, it's the self discovery process. Um, there's no good as a society um, because even even as a society, I don't think we can agree on common motivation. Um, you know, maybe from a you know, if we're American, we might say like, you know, I want to live the American dream. I want to do this thing. Um, but even the, the segmentation of that, if you break it down, um, it's it's widely different. So I think that in order to motivate ourselves, um, we, we do have to embark on some, some journey of self-discovery, um, some journey of understanding what it is that we really want uh, in our life. And that can change. You know what I yeah. want now as a you know mid thirty something year old is quite different from what I wanted as a you know eighteen year old in, in in university. Um, I fully embrace that, but um, I, there's there's always like the baseline of what it is. There's always something that's that stays the same, and so we have to spend our time kind of diving deep and then coming back up to, to surface what we what we want to live.
0: Yeah, one thing that that struck me. And i had this discussion with nick uh, a couple of weeks ago and we were we were stunned by you know we, we take this idea that we just that, that the, the two of us now just just illuminated if we take this out to the wilder public it wouldn't i don't think a lot of people would listen to us some people would right but i'd say one out of a hundred maybe five out of a hundred but most of them are either too busy they're not interested in this it's too complicated so and I think this 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 ratio must have been the same for a long time because the the old Greeks had the same problem. Um, and uh, one solution I think that we came up with, and I'm so I'm not sure if this is true, but that's kind of my my theory on this is. You know, the modern state um, was basically, and religion before this, especially Christianity. So the, the all the religions were you basically the pledge of allegiance is really quick. Like Christianity is literally a few sentences and um, some water and you're good to go, right? That's the new Christian. And you don't have to do much as a Christian. I mean, there's certain things you should do, but if you don't do them, it's okay too. Um, Judaism is a little harder and Islam is harder. Um, but what it did, it instilled a, a sense of ideals, a sense of... Um, self-improvement in people, right? So it gave a blueprint of this is how you should believe in this self-fulfilling prophecy, this illusion, like a free will, we have this illusion of God. Um, Maybe it's not an illusion, but we don't worry about if it's real or not. We just want you to believe in this. And people now are very critical of it, right? They say, oh, you gave us all these things in Deuteronomy and they're they're all nonsense. But what I say is, well, when you think of it, and the, the, how the modern state has been developed, and you know, the, the Locke was was they were all um, really into into Christianity. They were they were very devout Christians. What I think they did, they took this religious concept and transformed it into a more secular-looking state. But it kind of pushed the same ideas for better or worse. Right? Um, there's a lot of people who were disadvantaged by this. I fully see that. But what it did is it pushed on this idea that really hundred. The hundred percent of population, or maybe ninety-nine percent of population, got into the self-reflection and and figured out what can I do to be a better person, right? So that's a core concept of the Old Testament, but it also shines into the New Testament. So a lot of values they were not up for debate; they were just they were they were pushed down into people's throat for better or worse, and they made a lot of people really angry for good reason. But it it reached the ninety percent. When we have this discussion about self-reflection, I think we both understand what that means, and lots of other people in Silicon Valley that will agree with us. But beyond that, it's really difficult to get this in practice and every day and then make this an everyday practice. I don't know if there's a good marketing vehicle, but I always believe religion first, and then the modern state was this marketing vehicle for the self-improvement process.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's def- you you almost have to. I I think it comes down to, you know, what is someone losing or risking or what's at stake or, you know, like even um, one's own sense of fear, Uh, like a lot of ways to craft or to reflect in the modern society. Um, Primarily because we don't have a lot of things that we need to fear. Um, You know, we live, we live good lives for the most part. Um, It's just, you know, the, the things that happen in and around us, we sort of just take for you know take with its paces. So um, there isn't something we're not in a period of like survival, uh, in contrast to perhaps like um, you look at like we, we talk about like world religions back way back when thousands of years ago um, they were in a lot of time in a lot of cases they were probably dealing with very mortal um, mortal risks. Um, very well,
0: it, still 100% of people die, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It's, so it hasn't it's, it's just the thing. It's maybe a little longer, but it's the same thing. So I think yeah. we're in the same boat, more or less. It, it feels different because we can defeat certain diseases, right? And we feel we're a little safer. But, you know, like COVID could have been like airborne Ebola. It wasn't, but it could have easily has, have been, right? And now we would 90% of the population would, would, would have died. I mean, that would be catastrophic. The whole civilization would have fallen apart.
1: Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. I think again, it's this like fragmenting of of things. Cause everyone sort of like localizes sure. their understanding of of the threat level or um and even like the pervasiveness of whatever is kind of on the horizon. A lot of things that are occurring today, it's here one day, gone tomorrow. You know, like natural disaster here one day, gone tomorrow. Wildfire here, like it's just we don't, we're, su- we're in such a attention deficit that we don't really have time to realize like, oh, actually, you know, if I keep doing this thing or I don't institute some sort of vehicle for this belief system, um, then it, it impacts this. We're in a lot of ways, we're just kind of, again, the incremental behavior. So I don't have a good answer for this. Um, I think it's sort of evolution Of how people are thinking about this, and what are the commonalities, and how do we design against that? You know, kind of calling into the design thinking of it. But i I think we'd be a little bit hard pressed to find like marketing strategies for some of these things until you can get to um, some dynamic way of like generating the. If if you use like A/B testing, or you like have AI generate things and test it rapidly at scale, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to a, a top down approach, which is like Here's the thing. Let's push it down. I think it's going to be much more emergent. Um, yeah. As, like, yeah.
0: Yeah. I think this is this is when you when you read um, when you listen to Susan Wojcicki and what YouTube does. I feel that's that's what they want to do, right? They they feel like they have, they have become the new world religion or the new world government, and maybe they have, right? They have, they have that much influence, and they want to instill something better in it, but. That's very risky, right? That's extremely risky to do this as a in a in a you know, we just start from scratch. Um it's kind of like Karl Marx. There was a lot of good things about what Karl Marx defined and that he knew about, right? But his starting from a clean slate and just redefining economics from scratch wasn't such a good idea. We figured it out sooner or later, right? So I think that's that's those are the, the these forces that that currently where people get so anxious because it sounds like the, the things that we knew that work they, they're falling apart and I agree with you it's more more it's coming into these these smaller pockets of 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 interaction and that's probably good because people can specialise more they can be more creative all of all of those things are great but it also makes it harder to give people this this motivation for the for the updraft that we all need. And I think this is maybe also in the answer for, for these for the there's other economic answers but I feel for me that's an answer for this for this struggle of of equality that we have. Like, we don't want everyone to be the same, but we want everyone to be similar, right? And that's, but have similar opportunities at least. And that's, on one hand, we have all this technology and knowledge is available, but on weirdly enough, we see more inequality. And that's there's some Fed policies behind this, but I think it's this, there's also a drive in motivation. So motivation is not, was never equally distributed, but I feel now it, it, just a little bit more motivation gives you outsized gains. And that's why a lot some people work 16 hours right um, and every day and they're crazy busy and that's especially in the valley where we're all addicted to work but <laughs> a lot of people have nothing to do, and that's really painful, even if you have enough money to buy food and shelter. it's still really painful and that's that's really strange to see that right and for me, motivation and the scaling up of, of what motivation is worth, the value of motivation to yourself this a big factor to it
1: yeah. I like I liked what you said about motivation being not equally distributed. Um, I think that's really fascinating, um, and I, I think you know if we were to find proxies for motivation, you know whether it's access to information, maybe it's you know access to opportunity, um, because I, I, if we look at motivation, in a lot of ways, is like it's like um, psychological arousal. Something has piqued your interest something has grabbed your attention is compelling you to do this thing and people get excited when the value or the payoff is um disproportionate there's some incongruency somewhere um uh, whether it's them versus society or them versus their own self you know so you know kind of a, a Progressing oneself versus you know I can game some system somewhere, um, yeah. and I well, think
0: that... yeah I'm very you I, 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 you you have a very very important point there. Now it seems like we all just want to game the system. Before it seemed like we, we did real value. Now this is obviously there's no real definition for this right or maybe maybe there is, but it's seemingly like a lot of people think this is a zero sum game. So I have to I have to game the system, and I think before. Well, maybe it's the good old times. I can't be sure of it, but it's. I have the impression it was more like we want to increase the size of the pie, right? We, we, that's possible because economic um, growth was still normal. Now it's gotten so rare in many countries, and there's something weird with this, right? So, so why did we shift? It's probably it's the right behavior in that situation, right? So people realize this. I have to game the system. This is where where the money is, and they're right. But for society, it's a bad idea. I feel.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that's. And that's where I think some of the dialogue is, is changing as well. Um, and I think that's why discussions about equity, equality, about access, about opportunity are really important because you're not necessarily taking from one group and giving to another you're, you're, you're creating it in new places. So it's new growth. Um, whereas previously, you know, you're just kind of allocating, um, things as, as needed. And I think that's why we're having more conversations, like, you know, whether it's businesses, whether it's organizations, world governments, about sustainability. Uh, we're having conversations about, you know, how do you invest in people first? So we thinking about human capital, human development. Um, we're thinking about, um, you know, just mechanisms for seeing things as not scarce, but quite abundant. And how do you create more opportunity to To basically lift the tide for everyone, Um, but I don't know yet. I don't know yet how motivation will look like in that world. Um, I don't know what forms it will take, uh, where it will either be generated, and I don't know if you can spontaneously. I think it's like it's like laws of physics. You can't just create energy, um, or you can't just create.
0: Something. Yeah, but you can. No, it's like, I, I think of it like the DNA soup. So yeah, no, I, we, that's this famous experiment, right? That you put all the elements on the early earth together and it eventually created something that looks, it's a precursor to DNA. And the certain elements must come together and it must be in the right um Right, percentages. And I think the same is true for economic opportunity. You can, You. can. I grew up in, in Eastern Europe. Um, I grew up in Eastern Germany and economic opportunity basically didn't exist because it was not planned for. So nobody needed it. So the, the idea of economic opportunity was we don't need it because everyone has enough to eat. So we don't, but what they, it worked actually the Eastern European or the Soviet system worked better in many countries for 15, 20 years because it was so well, well, and efficient as a bureaucracy, right? But then it completely fell apart. And that was already visible in the mid-70s, um, late 70s. I think this is why the US stopped competing on that high level that it did um in the 60s and 70s. I think this is why we lost so much growth in the last couple of years, because we don't have an enemy. Now finally we have an enemy again that we can that is actually a real enemy, like China, right? So we can we can um we can actually compete against them and, and improve ourselves in this process. And I think what happened is up economic opportunity, it doesn't thrive on the regulation. So a regulation is good, it's more efficient, and it seems like it's more it's more just, so to speak. And it is in the beginning. But what, what, what people miss is that it it also grades out all these things, these little things in the shadows that eventually become a huge business. So we in Silicon Valley know that, right? So these little two-people businesses can be $5 billion in just two years, right? Or even less. And we we have to create... We have to be intellectually honest enough and be wise enough to to let as much opportunity roll in terms of not, and I think it's what happened to healthcare and to energy business, a lot of these places where we just felt we're doing the right thing and we want to keep everyone safe. But what happened is we have too little opportunity. An opportunity is hard to keep up because it always makes people uneasy, right? There's always some little bit of crime in there. There's a little bit of hacking the system. There's a little bit of of things that we want to avoid for good reason, right? And there's maybe people don't get paid the minimum wage. There's a lot of shadiness going on. I agree. But it also usually is the source that bubbles out of this DNA soup and the animal comes out and says, okay, this is the new life form. And I think this, this is often a hard to draw a line. And I, th- I feel we've, we've, we've polarized obviously so much, um, but if we would all realize that we have to be very careful about what we regulate, even if it's well-intended, I think that's 90% of it.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think regulation is necessary, um, but too much regulation is also a great inhibitor. Um, and, and it doesn't, I think a lot of policy doesn't necessarily take into account Um, the diversity of scenarios and circumstances in which regulation is or isn't helpful. Um, And, you know, I I think, maybe this is just my personal thought, I don't think from a innovation perspective, from a technology perspective, or even just like the advancement of society, I don't think many world governments are equipped to have forward, future-facing conversations about, those things, they're highly reliant on economics, uh, highly reliant on probably even outdated economic models for things. Um, But there are many other fields to borrow from that can inform how we should or shouldn't, and I use that kind of conservatively, the word should, um, have conversations about who and how we create the future. Um, And I don't know if many governments are equipped in that way. Uh, Like, even if we look at, like, technology or science or innovation policy in the States, I'm pretty sure we're behind.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Uh, well... I actually feel, of, of course, uh, that's another debate. I feel we, we should err on the side of no regulation. So actually, we, we should have very limited government, but I'm also not a crazy libertarian. We need to have a certain amount of government or everyone is going their own way and we lose all the efficiency. So there is there is a middle line. Obviously, people have different belief systems that, that where they draw the line. I wanted to ask you something else. It was really interesting also what you said last time. You said there is, um, you, you, you kind of analyze what other futurists Futurists think and what they do what they say. And apparently, before COVID hit you you had this this impression that a lot of people in the industry, um other people that you monitor and you have to uh, tell us more about how you do this. um they tended towards um kind of you said they they were more interested in resilience they were more interested in so why they 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 maybe they they made it I don't know if they became burners, but they thought about that idea of, 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 of planning for the, for the worst case scenario. And you felt like that's kind of like the bird that the birds that can feel the earthquake is coming. Um, that's something really interesting. Can you illuminate that for us?
1: Yeah, I, I will say that um, they've not stopped. Um, so, you know, generally the process I take for monitoring um, not just trends, but influencers as well, um, they, because a lot of what they're sharing can be knowledge or domain expertise based, but some of it also is intuition. And I think it too, intuition is the thing that propels us beyond um, tangible sensory perception. Um, and I think it's quite powerful. I don't know how it works, I mm-hmm. cannot tell you that. But you know, monitoring, it's, it's quite a lot like social listening. You have a bunch of data repositories that are constantly parsing trends, market, competitive um, technology. Uh, but you also have a number of influencers that you can kind of define per the spaces you want to study. And so they're always talking about things. You know where their keywords are, you know what they tend to talk about. Um, So there's a very fascinating sort of, not only sentiment analysis that happens there, but I think you can kind of start to see themes or clusters emerge in just what they talk about and what is their current occupation, Um, which might go back to what you said sort of about (laughs) self-propaganda. But... Resilience was very fascinating because um, I noticed an uptick in the number of um, people who were talking about resilience, not just in the form of technology, so, you know, maybe following some influencers who were talking about agricultural resilience, and they were like, oh, we need technologies for the famine, but in general, there was a, a, you know, when they were started recommending out other people, and that you started seeing new, new nodes form in the network of like, oh, I see this person talking about this person a lot or referencing their work a lot or they're engaging in discussion. Um, The new entrants into these these sort of technological trends discussions tended to be um, focused on very human issues um, of leadership, of emotional fitness, of uh, emotional resilience. And then you also saw this uh, sort of entrance of uh, leaders, you know, from the business world or from the government world that are also talking about resilience. How do we prepare for the next big blank? Um, And so seeing the new sort of the emergence or the lighting up of new nodes was very fascinating. And then just the sheer volume of content. Um, So a lot of my monitoring is looking at white papers or just inbound content that's being distributed between networks. And there was just so many like reportings on what is the value of resilience in an organization? How do you prepare, you know, how do you have sort of preparedness for an org? Um, How do you incorporate that into your leadership? Um, But then also how do you as an individual practice that? How do you sort of grow your resilience? How do you expand upon that? Um, And I found that very curious. I, I couldn't, in the conversation I had, there was no there was no very specific thing that they were all trying to drive towards. Like, oh, I think we're gonna have an earthquake here in California, so therefore we're gonna do this thing. But there was, um, to best describe it, sort of an ambient anxiety about something. Uh, Not being able to pinpoint it to anything in particular, but saying something, something is going to happen. And I know it's that my most critical, either for me as a person, my most critical systems or, my most, um, my best known vulnerability, whether it's my how I operate, whether it's um, the assets I have, but there was just some kind of bubbling up of anxiety that was just pervasive. And then, when COVID hit, um, the discussions I had probably within the first week or two of Shelter in Place here in California um, were around, um, in particular, with coaching clients. Uh, was like, oh, remember when you told me that burnout was going to be a thing and that I should have prepared for it? I'm I'm prepared now to lead my team in, in a way that um, sort of taps into my reserve, where I I have enough now prepared to go ahead in order to um, provide space for my team or safety or you know support. Um, and it was I had never intended those conversations to go that way. But there was a, a real recognition of like resilience is here to stay. How do I do it better? How do I get more of it? And how do I share that with other people?
0: Yeah, I find that fascinating. And I I can't I can't really decipher what was first, but I felt like in San Francisco there were distinct phases. So there was um a very euphor there was a lot of euphoria. Until like 2014, 2015. I don't know where it came from. Um this and it might have been terrible phases before that was and it was out of the ordinary um from from my point of view, and that was not just San Francisco, but I think it was a globally a phenomenon. There was a sense of euphoria. Obviously, we came out of the, the, the depression about the housing housing crisis, and it seemed like, okay, we're going to be fine because in the in the financial crisis, a lot of people got really worried this thing is going to fall apart completely. and it didn't. And I think, we can attribute this maybe to, to just economics, but I think there was a strange sense of, of extreme of euphoria. And without the financials, the financial markets <clears throat> did very well, more or less, um until 2020. I think the mood really soured um 2015, 16, 17. And then well, I don't I, I just really see this in, in San Francisco. Definitely the the um, there didn't seem to be any external events yet, um, and then 17, 18, 19, it became very, very negative. So this depression that we talked about earlier, that I think uh, people now really lumber in, it was something that that already started way before this. And now we can say COVID is a bit of a self-made crisis, right? Because the reaction to COVID was was extraordinary. It's a dangerous virus, but we had dangerous viruses before. We didn't know how dangerous that one would be, but by the time we knew June, July. We still doubled down on on protecting us from it, which, especially for younger population, is is questionable. Let's put it this way. Um, for older population, it is an extremely dangerous virus. Um, it kind of i I'm, I'm not sure was you know this 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 negativity and the way, and I, I actually trace it back to to the Facebook algorithm. So the Facebook algorithm initially, um gave you a lot of it literally gave everyone a lot of likes. So the likes became a currency, right? And and they were inflated a lot. Um, so whatever you put online on Instagram or Facebook, you get hundreds of thousands of likes, which makes you very happy. You know how psychology works. That's validation. That's like it's better than most things in life. Um, when you get millions of likes on your post. And I think this inflation came to a, to a pretty sudden halt in 2015 when Facebook changed the algorithm and said, no, no, no. This was all nonsense. So, what we now do, we change the whole engagement mechanism, and only what it what happened? Or it makes sense. What happened is it was a huge deflation in likes. So your posts were not shown to anyone anymore, but some people still had that, what? Right? A few people still got got all the likes. what they got ten times the amount of likes. They literally got millions on and whatever post they put out. And this change in algorithm, I think because people had become adjusted to this to this euphoria of the likes, That really drove people, and this sounds stupid, right, but I think because it rolled out to people who didn't didn't even use social media in the end through the social connectedness, to me, this is where this all started. It's literally this huge deflation and likes and the changes in the Facebook algorithm that made people depressed. And it made them more and more depressed because they were still kind of addicted to social media, and I think they're still in there. And then it went really polarized. And then they needed to find something to produce a crisis. I'm not saying that COVID isn't real, but I'm saying we manufactured a crisis and we would have found something else to manufacture a crisis. And I think maybe that's why you saw that so early because people knew we're going to need a crisis. Whatever the crisis is going to be, we're going to need one. And if if, if COVID wouldn't have been, then we would have found something else to create a crisis out of it, like a revolution or who knows what what would have happened otherwise. Um, That's kind of my explanation of it.
1: I think that's really fascinating. I think that's. I, I think there's a discomfort, and you know, I don't know how to necessarily qualify it, but there's a discomfort with progressive sort of upward trajectory um, with society, with the economics, uh, or the economy. I mean, um, and it's like, when will this end? When is when is you know everything going to fall down and fall apart? Um yeah. and so there's sort of a scanning of the horizon, and look, everything is assessed as with a risk level or a threat. you know oh, that thing right. right there, that the housing market over here, you know the the um you know trade agreement here or you know climate change there. Um, so it's like it's it's interesting you say that because now that's kind of jogging the thinking here when when I had these conversations of resilience back in starting in two thousand and eighteen, they were not the same the reasons for for seeking resilience were not the same. Um, uh, Even if they shared very similar roles like founders, um, their preoccupations would be on whatever was sort of within their sphere of of, um, community or influence, Um, but their mechanisms for preparedness look very similar. Um, So I don't know if that means that there's some sort of um, uh, a template for, for how we prepare ourselves, regardless of what the crisis is. To your point about like creation of crisis, whether it's the culmination of many, many different anxieties and decisions that are made in light of fear or anxiety that sort of push together a bunch of different things and have it become something um, or have it sort of be a reflection of many, many people's anxieties packaged to one. I don't know, Um, but it's very, very fascinating what you just shared.
0: Yeah, when you when you look, there's a there's a huge underground. I'm not even sure it's the underground. It's probably becoming a big big minority of like doom, doomsday scenario about the economy. It's the Federal Reserve, right? It's the end of the dollar. It's the end of the stock market. It's the end of and I think the people who who propagate those they have really good arguments from economic theory. Those are those are often very, extremely wise economists. But I think and they they now say, oh, just forget about the dollar, go into Bitcoin, and uh, forget about stocks, go into I don't know, real estate or you know, the the, the burners who go to the burning Man. Um, they kinda they, they they make this exit from society, and I'm like, okay, this is all fine, and you might be onto something, but the problem is you need to we are all in this together anyways. I mean, you, you can't live on your baked beans forever, maybe for a year, but then it's over, like you just want to kill yourself because there's nobody else around. So what that's I think what a lot of people finally realized with COVID, we are all in this boat together, with different skills and, and you know different behavior levels, but we got to find a way out that that all of us that gives us the best efficiency for all of us. And just abandoning the dollar and saying I'm going to Bitcoin is ridiculous to me. Um, n- not that Bitcoin is necessarily a bad thing, but the the idea of just okay, this is all going to come to a big doomsday scenario. Once you start thinking like this, and once it propagates, then it becomes a scenario, right? Because in the society, all these problems that we see are easily fixable. Like they're, they're not, they're not. It's not an asteroid that's coming against us, but even that would probably be fixable. But they're pretty relatively small issues, right? But everyone is is building up this. Don't trust anyone. Don't trust the dollar. Don't trust this. It's like. We need roads, but instead of building roads, we just say, "Oh, just get a big truck," and then we say, "Oh, we'll get an even bigger truck," and just have dirt roads. This is not helpful, right? So, it's it's this, and I think it's 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 always been there, but it goes back and forth, and uh, we we see this. I think Ray Dalio had had um, popularized this, but there were other books before he wrote this one. This is big cycle we go through um, in economics. It's about three or four generations, and the the, the is this doomsday event so to speak but i mean the second world war was a doomsday event but for most americans it wasn't that bad you know you lost maybe 20 percent of your real income but you didn't lose your life i mean most of fortunately didn't have to lose their life so i think most people expect a scenario like that like the second world war something bad happens it's not necessarily the asteroid is going to kill us all i think this was this is palpable whenever the, the we see a new top in terms of the economy makes and a lot of people now think that we have one more of those 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 sucker punches, like it's going to recover, and then we're going to see one more of those, and then you know some of will inflate the dollar by 50 percent, and then but but that's it, right? It's not, but it creates this huge anxiety in between that really messes with people, and I think social networks they 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 accelerated this quite a bit, and that's why we saw these this big uptick in in positivity, and then this huge drop. Yeah. No. I-
1: I think that there's um, in and of itself, like social networks and like, so like societal or collective sentiment. Um, It's interesting that, you know, we're in that machine and it does influence so much of other, other parts of the machine um, that we wouldn't have expected. And and it's sort of, I mean, it's relatively new in in the grand scheme of, of history,
0: but it's like Where the book. Have... Like a lot of people say, it's like the book or the newspapers. Right? It's kind of the same thing, just a little faster.
1: Yeah, just a little faster, and um, uh, it's it's. I don't know. I feel like sometimes some of it's all, it's on its own um, afterlifes, like initial post or initial share, and then the conversations that come out of it, or you know, the subsequent shares of it further down to other communities. Um, so it's, it's, in my opinion, I think it's a little bit more, um, complex. Um, it has a life of its own that is not necessarily, doesn't follow sort of the, um, the half-life of, uh, traditional news and media. Um, and I, I think we can see this too, because sometimes algorithms have a fascinating way of, like, resurfacing old content, um, in, in new ways or with new context, um, but I do think that we're not, I do think that this anxiety, this kind of like um, sort of default behavior of like collapsing into oneself, giving into one's anxieties and fears, um, pulling away from collective society. And and in some cases, like you had mentioned, trying to get an escape velocity from it. Um, Society and government can only work when we know when we can kind of like be in it together yeah and i think that once we start to collapse that structure and we discard or disregard um the benefits that it can provide yeah. uh collectively um, then we've diminished the, some of the um the benefits we've removed it and we've weakened its structure um, so therefore, when it comes to the response, um, we're not equipped because we don't—we no longer have certain parts of, you know, society connected in a meaningful way. We don't have free flow of trust um, and relationship. Um, so I think we're—we're. We're, I don't know how things will be post-COVID. Um, I don't know if it's going to be a continuation of what we had before, if it's a new normal or or whatnot. But I do watch this with a lot of doomsday scenarios and anxiety is very real. And, you know, my my hypothesis is we're gonna move from this and we're gonna go in search of the next one. Like it's just, yeah, it's yeah. just yeah. ever. Well, yeah,
0: it's ever- a, I think it's a constant struggle. I, I mean, you know, the, the, the ancients, how do you motivate people to believe in God as you redraw a doomsday scenario, right? Even if it's not real. So this is not, this this we need this as humans so, so to motivate ourselves. Um, you know, we, we, it's, it's this old saying, when you go to Tel Aviv, everyone there lives their day as it's their last, and it's it's probably a good idea, right? Because you believe the doomsday scenario is next day, so you, you enjoy your life and you do the best you can. Um, but talking about making the world a better place, one more thing, um, and, and I really, really, really enjoy uh, um, how we how we um, talked about the other um, items. Um, you said there is a serious change about um, how we can make actual innovation happen. And then what you mentioned is, um, the Idea of a by combinator, and I know you worked um, in a crowdfunding company, um, Republic, um, or have um, been involved with them, um, who is very successful at um, shaping the way um, companies raise funds. Um, anyone can contribute to a campaign, and now I think the, the campaign limits. Um, you had Darren Marble on, he explained to me that it's up to, I think, $30 million. Um, so the campaign limits of what you can raise have changed a lot. But you also said. the the model how innovation is typically being perceived in larger corporations is pretty broken. And it should maybe resemble more um, a challenge um, or an accelerator. Um, What do you think is the best model right now? And where does most of the innovation actually come from?
1: Yeah, I I think that um, I'm still discovering for myself what this truly means, but I think there is a democratization of innovation that needs to happen. Um, most corporate entities tend to rely on, you know, the select chosen few that have, you know, ex, you know exceptional disability within the org. Um, what I've tended to find in working with corporate innovation teams um, is that while they're great um, thinkers, sometimes they're not the best entrepreneurs. Um, so they may find something that's quite fascinating, but when you have to connect it to greater value you know, for customers, for partners, for whoever is in your ecosystem as a business, Um, thinking outside and towards like others is is kind of a a point of complication for many companies. Um, And it's oftentimes that uh, something that's quite cool and interesting is not always something that translates well into the market. Um, And I think that's sort of the disconnect. That's where the break happens. Um, When I think about how corporate innovation or even just innovation as a whole uh, most companies are experiment uh, experiencing quite in- incremental innovation. It, you know, we we added a feature, we added a new product, we did the thing. Um, but it rarely bubbles up into game changers, um, things that have, you know, a new market, new customer segmentation, a um, uh, completely dramatic new way of thinking about, you know, problem X, Y, or Z. And I think it's because um, they haven't tapped into, they have a very... Dormant uh, innovation machine. Like they're they're asking a couple of cogs in the machine to you know do the work, go innovate, figure out what this thing is. When there's this like entire engine, this entire machine that's just waiting to be woken up and to be engaged in the process. Um, and the way that a, co- a lot of companies operate right now, how they do it, is they try to funnel through. Um, like, entrepreneurship programs, or they try to do incubators or accelerator programs where they, you know, handpick very specific people and they ask them, you know, you've got six months to do this thing, here's a million dollars. Um, But that process is not open to everyone. It is a highly exclusive process. Um, and, And oftentimes it doesn't actually identify the true, like, where are these, like, um, clusters of high innovation and collaboration? Where are these clusters of like cus- customer partner insights? Um, where are these dynamic teams that work so well together that regardless of what you toss at them, they can execute and, and turn on a dime? Those are other aspects of innovation that we rarely tap into, not just the, you know, the, the expert thinker, but there are many, many, many roles within innovation. And until we understand um as a society, that everyone is capable of innovation, everyone's capable of creativity, um, and we don't harness that that dormant machine. we're We're going to fall on our faces over and over again using these models of exclusivity, um, because rarely is value created in in a closed system. That closed system is going to create value for itself, promotion, you know, pay raise, whatever. You open up that system, you've got influx, you've got connectivity to other nodes, and suddenly you've woken up the machine. Who knows what can happen after that? So I, I think there's there's some dramatic change that needs to happen um, in operating, but then also how it's funded, how it's how you're compensated, how you're rewarded for participation and in innovation. Um, and I think that's why the conversations around equity um, are really important. I, I don't think that we're not gonna live in a society where uh, annual salary is the only thing. And you know startups have equity, but I, I don't think it's just here's a percentage of the company um, that you have ownership or control over. I, I think it goes beyond that. Like profit sharing, royalties of ideas, um, commission off of something that you contributed to the system. Um, I don't know, There's there's so many possibilities for how we reward um, and incentivize innovation uh, but we have to start first with how we operate
0: yeah I, I, you know there's this famous saying the silicon valley is where startups go to steal technology and then raise a lot of money and uh, so the, the the problem with innovation is that it, it's very difficult to attribute it to the person who actually contributed the most and you, you, you know your father is a physicist you, you know this very well a lot of it's a very altruistic community but it is very difficult to trace back um, who actually made that discovery because it's all based on so many layers of prior discoveries. So when we talk about innovation, it's often, um, and that's often been the case for startups, there's a bunch of startups who try at the same time, very often, not always, but very often the one that has a lot of money actually wins the race because they can subscribe to most customers and then actually get to the best economies and then buy everyone else. It's not always like that. You know, sometimes just money doesn't do anything. And, um, I, I always feel with innovation when once, and I like that approach that you that that definitely sounds like you want to bring in a wider a, a wider um, sense of every employee can be a big innovator, but but matching it with the reward is obviously very tricky because you never know who had the most input in doing this. Right, it's it's extremely difficult, and I for a while I was I was I was really. Um, um, really partial to that idea that we should just print more money say we print a trillion dollars but we buy a lot of patents and just make these patents open source kind of what we do with software I could I'd say a huge portion of innovation and software is now coming from open source software where everyone seems to have no incentive to actually contribute because literally you get no money out of it but it still gives you attention which again is actually more valuable I feel than money if they need to have some money right so we can talk about ubi which i'm really i'm a big proponent of it but beyond a certain amount of money you want i talked to a bunch of billionaires they're much more interested in in having a heritage and delivering something that they can they can inherit to the next generation right and that's often you know very soft knowledge so to speak um so it's human recognition so i think if we we maybe this is a shortcut in making our life a little easier if we find if we can come up with more meritocratic models um say like github or say like youtube um that obviously we it doesn't matter where you come from doesn't matter what language you speak or doesn't matter what how you actually create that that um that engagement it, people have a way to vote you and obviously they will be wrong many many times but in, in the long term i feel and it, I think it must happen with social media, too. Hopefully, it will. We feel like the, the wrong content bubbles up there, but, well, the time will tell if that's true. Certain, certain places like TikTok will never probably promote the right content. But if we can come up with these systems, and I think with the, that's why I said the inflation of likes, if we find the next thing that, that kind of gives us likes and makes us feel comfortable and useful, or not because we are useful, because we created something that's valued by the community, that might solve our problem. And um, it's obviously very hard to, to pull them off. It needs a lot of money and needs a lot of um, good infrastructure and needs to be accepted by a wide range of community. But I feel like it's really cheap for humanity for a platform like GitHub where it costs almost nothing and it makes a big impact on our coders uh, every day. Or Stack Overflow or YouTube is one that, that comes to mind where I feel well, once, once everyone accepts this model of, of, of community reward, um, it's extremely powerful because it's all open, open, and you can you can use it as in your stack the next day, like physicists and scientists do, right? If someone in in China finds some, writes a white paper, and a lot of scientists felt it's good, then you base your next discovery on that. You don't redo it, right? I think this is what's missing with corporate innovation. It it's a mix of I'm sure I'm, I'm I'm guarding my secrets for commercial gain, which is good, right? I mean, a company needs to make money, and it, it, there is a place for this. The commercialization is 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 useful, but we should have a huge pool of open source everything. Let's put it this way. Like pretty much any discovery that's being made should first be open source, can be maybe taken off the market in certain conditions. But I think if we do the same for healthcare, that we have permissionless innovation and a big open source system, we can cure anything. I think we we can cure cancer and almost we can now cure it already, but we can cure the most difficult diseases within years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that I don't know what that system looks like, but to me, it's there's a traceability to it. You know what? What did you um, leverage? What did you create? Um, where? What other lives did it live in other places? Um, and I think that we don't really have, aside from our social media presence or you know maybe a CV online or a blog, we don't have. Um, Repositories that reflect our our intellectual—I um, won't say property because I don't think it is—but our sort of our intellectual creation, or you know, just even the inner the inner workings of our minds. Um, I thought about this a little bit. Um, I, I'm very fascinated by potentially an open source second brain. Um, and yeah, I know there's a lot good, of, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like something where you're just like, here are the things I'm thinking about. This is what I thought was really fascinating and you can fork off something from that. Um, and I think that there's, you know, maybe it looks a little bit more like the influencer model, um, but I think that's wildly fascinating because now you can take the snippets, you can create derivative works, you can apply it in a different way and you, and people can actually trace the applications to understand yes. these things. Um, and I think also within this, like, I don't know if um, if GitHub has uh, sort of analytics around this, but looking at networks, um, kind of like social network analysis and seeing like who are certain contributors, um, what snippets of their work has been uh, very instrumental or critical to other pieces or have been used uh, with, with a certain frequency. Um, but I had, I, I, I know a researcher that one of the projects he worked on was actually looking at um, organizational innovation networks. Um, and he used VR to, to um, networks and they could actually go in, one of the, the, potentially one of the practical applications where you could go in and you could see um, the structure of a, a portion of the organization, like the, uh, the network structure. And you could kind of parse out very specific nodes that were considered like high value or high contributors. Um, and the thinking there was that, you know, if you did this for an organization from an innovation perspective, um, how do you keep that node in place? Because they, they're a stabilizing uh, force for the rest of the structure that grows around them. And I think yeah. that's the same thing in society. Um, you're gonna have these different ones and you we should be able to, to visualize and identify them. Um, but then also, what other lives are they living in other places that they don't know about? Um, I think that's also a really interesting thing outside of um, building legacy uh, of getting recognition is to see see the progression um, beyond whatever you've created what other lives does it live?
0: Yeah well it's it's I, I like that idea I, I think it's relatively abstract to describe it, but if we if we find a couple of those major platforms that that incentivize innovation, trace it back, give, maybe give a give a creator payout, right? that's that's a big topic right now for a lot of platforms that that are playing with creator payouts. And YouTube has a bit of this, but it's very difficult to make a decent amount of money from it. I think if that might be one thing, but it's also this. It's it's probably more the, the the recognition by others that you you've done something useful, and it would make this you know what we talked about earlier this this, this desire about um, and I, I know that's very strong on, on Stack Overflow. You want to want to contribute something really unique, or literally you're the only person on planet Earth who knows this, but it helps thousands of other people every day. That's that's really strong with the community editors there, and I think Wikipedia has that too. Um, those those things once they take off become tremendously useful and. If if we could get corporations, especially in healthcare, you know, where, where so much stuff is patented and so much stuff is in labs that nobody even has access to, if we can get them to 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 collaborate on this and share their knowledge, I think it would work out for them too. And that's for software. It's it's really interesting to see that there's a lot of software giants, um, including Google, who who outsource a lot of their development because they feel they're better off this way into the open source community. They, they don't do it because they're altruistic, because they feel like if they they make TensorFlow um, open source, which is a huge framework, and they they did a lot of work on that, that cost hundreds of millions of dollars. But if they outsource it, they will be they will be faster, because you would never know where there is some talent who knows something about that. And I think this is a really difficult learning curve, because it kind of I think it's it runs counter to Adam Smith's argument, which is I think what it's it's still one of the strongest arguments we, we are basing our society on. And for these knowledge platforms and for open source software, this is my best example. It kind of runs counter to all of this, right? As from from a, at least intuitively, like giving something away to make more money later. I know it sounds like like a stupid internet idea, right? Most it sounds like you, you would hear this on Sand Road a lot. But everywhere else, it sounds really ridiculous. Like, I mean, there is marketing, right? There is a bit of this, but to 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 give everything you've got—the whole software package or the whole patent on your on your on your on your medicine, on your, your specific drug—to give it all away just to make more money in ten years, yeah, I don't think you can do this. It, no shareholder will sign off on this yet. So we we kind of have to—I don't know. i almost—it's almost like a re-education, right? We have to, if it actually works, and that's a big if. But if that works in more than a few industries, but more and more will scale up like the software industry has with the help of, of technology, um, how do we get people to, to recognize this? I mean, you need entrepreneurs, right? The venture, the whole, whatever, they're billionaires and they give it all away and say, okay, we have to start from scratch in an open source model. I think this is going to be really interesting. Who who can pull this off to create that dynamic, right? That's, I don't know. That's maybe that's probably an educational process, not a forced process Here, are right? in. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think there's... um. And what you're saying, there's sort of a, there's an economics of trust um, because someone has to make the first move or some yeah. multiple entities have to make the first move together, um, create the proof points, and then effectively find ways to scale that out and, and make it something that is adoptable. Um, I, I do think that there's going to be a very strong case. I don't know where it's going to emerge for cooperation. Um, and I think even in, in my work with transformation of, of companies and organizations, um, the, the conversation of cooperation and trust keeps coming up. You know, how do we share data with each other? How do we give each other our best um, information and resources and, and actively share them in a meaningful way? Um, so I know that the exercise is playing out, um, you know, here and there within organizations, but now how do we move outside of the org? And how do we move into cross-company, um, not within the company, but across different inter-companies um, to have this sort of dialogue. Um, and that's that's going to be a massive a massive exercise in trust, negotiation, and in cooperation.
0: Yeah. Well, with this big task ahead of us, um, I want to thank you for, for doing this. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I um, thought it was I enjoyed it tremendously. I think it was a really good um, flow of ideas, and uh, uh, maybe in uh, in a couple of months we we know much more about that. And the world has maybe uh, gone to the next crisis, or oh, hopefully not. Maybe we we're we are all back to to a lot of optimism.
1: Yeah, no, I thoroughly enjoyed this. So thank you so much for having me on this uh, on the podcast and amazing conversation. Thank you.
0: Absolutely, Melissa. Um, until next time. Cheers. Take care. Bye bye.